The following program is a presentation of the Radio Talking Book Service in Omaha, Nebraska. RTBS programming is intended solely for individuals who cannot read conventional print due to a disability. Ineligible listeners risk infringing on copyright law, and RTBS is not responsible for any violations that may occur. It's time now for today's edition of Community Conversations. It's the interview program in which we dialogue with voices from the Omaha community. And here's your host for Community Conversations. Let's welcome Cammie Carlisle. Hello, friends. Welcome once again to another edition of Community Conversations. This is Ryan O. filling in for Cammie Carlisle this week. We have a very special guest You'll recognize her voice. You've heard her before. In fact, you hear her every Sunday afternoon at 1, repeated every early Monday morning at 1. She reads guideposts for us. She is our longtime volunteer. We love her to death at a Radio Talking Book. It's Karen Cote. Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Ryan. Now, normally we talk to our volunteers in the context of our volunteer spotlight program, but we have Karen here for something special and I think very important. Karen was, not too long ago, the member of a jury, and I thought it would be fun to and, and educational to have her on to talk about her experiences serving on a jury. So before we get to your actual jury experiences, tell us a, a little about yourself, Karen, and uh, your time with Radio Talking Book and, and what led you here. Well, years ago, a friend of mine used to volunteer here at Radio Talking Book and encouraged me to come and be a reader because they always needed readers. And it just wasn't a point in my life when I had time. But when I retired, I thought, now I can do it. So that's when I started. And I started off with the For Your Information But then you had the guidepost slot, and that really suits me well. We did. And I should mention, too, you were gone for a while during the pandemic, and you came back, and we were so excited when you returned. I uh, was excited to return. Do you have any background in the legal world? Well, my degree in college was in criminal justice, but I never used it per se. But I had a little bit of familiarity because of that. So, Karen, tell me how you first came into contact with uh, your experience serving on a jury. What was the first thing that happened? The first thing was the notification card. I got it the 1st of September, and it informed me that I was um, being called in for federal jury duty, which I was not familiar with. That is a month-long obligation, and I would be obligated for the month of November. And they gave me about two months' notice, and um, asked a lot of questions then, went online, set up an account, basic background questions, those sorts of things. And then the first part of October reached out again to me with the opportunity to answer more questions that I realized later would sort of inform the attorneys on both sides of maybe some of my opinions and experiences. So just to put a pin in it, this is uh, starting in September of 2021, correct? Yes, yes. Okay. For jury duty in November of 2021. Got it. Yes. And um, then in October, uh, they said, you know, here's the date that you'll call in and find out. Very much like other jury duties, you call on a Friday to see if you're supposed to show up or not. But boy, when we got within a week of the time, they contacted me via email, via text, via phone, via letter. They wanted to make sure I knew that my time was coming and where and when I needed to be there. What did your life look like 
when you realized you were about to put everything on hold for jury duty? Well, I'm a really organized person and I like to have a plan. And oddly enough, in November, I had an extremely important commitment that was going to take up about 10 solid days the third week of November. And now you're telling me that I am obligated for 30 days for federal jury duty? Wow. (laughs) But I'll tell you, Ryan, um, and some people may have surmised this if they listen to the guidepost. I really have um, faith that God has the details of my life as well as the overall picture. I thought this did not surprise him. It's going to work out. I'm just going to remain calm and do the next right thing. Real quick, and I probably should have asked you this at the top of the show, Mm -hmm. tell me about your family, um, immediate family and those obligations. Um, I have a husband, a dog, a cat, and my son is grown and lives in Colorado. I am retired. So it's about as easy as you can get to um, pair back and say, nope, not going to be there. Did you spend uh, a lot of time away from your husband? Um, No, actually, when we got started with the jury duty, I went in, I was very fortunate. I was called the very first day that was possible to um, go and do that initial, wow, and I forget the name of what they call it in Latin, but that initial prospect where they bring in about 50 or 60 people and start the review process. And my my years of watching Law & Order leads me to think you're talking about voir dire. That's it. Yes. Thank you so much, Ryan. <laughs> Law & Order, Perry Mason, and a long time ago, some John Grisham novels. That's the extent go. of my legal research. That's so. it. And um, so they did intensive questions and comparisons, read off all the juror, potential jurors' names. Do you know anybody else? Do you know anybody related to the defendant's law team? Blah, 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 you know. And um, then did you have any connections with the law? Had you ever been pulled over for DUI? All these kinds of things. And that took the entire morning. And then 14 of us were selected I was one of those, and that's when I found out if I were selected for this first case and served on it, that would that would end my obligation. Now, my, again, very layman's understanding of the jury is there are only 12 members. You said 14. Would that be the two de- uh, the alternates? Yes, okay. and the alternates sat there through everything with us until it came to deliberation. Got it. So go ahead, just take us forward in kind of a narrative and tell us uh, you're at voir dire now. They went through all of that process, and like I said, those questions, I couldn't believe they would say, you know, has anybody had a DUI or someone in your family with a DUI? So, you know, with something that broad, lots and lots of people would stand up, and, and when they would explain their situation, then the judge would say, and would this cause you to not be able to give a fair Uh, judgment in this case. And they would basically say no. And it was cute. One of the things, you know, they asked, do you have any hardship in taking this? And one, one sweet woman got up and said, well, that she was supposed to be at her granddaughter's wedding um, Saturday, which would not be a problem. But then there was the dinner Friday night. And the judge, bless his heart, said, you're the grandma. You have to be there. And so she was released based on that. Oh, man. Yes. That's neat. So when they finished the voir dire and the 14 of us are chosen, he explained that uh, we would go to a smaller courtroom. We were in larger because of COVID. We would go to the smaller courtroom and then he would give us our instructions, which he did. And um, a couple of those key instructions were that um, the defendant is presumed innocent. Uh And he really stressed that. He stressed that it would be the um, prosecutor's uh, job to convince us that he was guilty, 
not for us to um, try and make him innocent, that the presumption is innocent, and that it was very important that we spend all of the time listening to the evidence without making up our mind, just keep setting aside any sort of decision until we hit the end and we're given our instructions. So You said the magic word a, a minute ago, and I want to drill down on that a little mm-hmm. bit, COVID. Yes. Tell me how this looked different under COVID protocols than it otherwise might have. Your Good experience point. here. When we showed up, of course, we had to have masks. Everyone was masked and um, because vaccinations really hadn't started. This was November. They gave us bottled water. And when we signed in, there was a particular number that each of us had been given ahead of time, which corresponded to a seat, which was even if it was on a bench, you were separated from people and you sat in your number. And they people would take their masks off if they were in the witness box later when the trial was on. But basically, we all sat there with our masks on. So it was kind of difficult to understand. Maybe you'd take your mask off just when you were speaking to the judge, and that was it. So go ahead, Karen. Um, at, at this point, it sounds like uh, you're in a different courtroom. Right. You, you get your instructions. Yes. So we, what we, happens at that point? Um, so then the attorneys both started um, – they had their opening statements. And the judge had explained to us that evidence – was factual, and even the opening and closing statements were not to be considered as evidence when we later went to make our decision. So the um, the prosecution and the defense both uh, gave their opening statements. Now, I should back up and say that they had told us back when we were still in the Bordier that, um, that this case went back to 2016. Wow. And it involved... Um, a a Nebraska state trooper at the time, he had since left the force, but in 2016, a Nebraska state trooper was involved with a gentleman I will call in, in this conversation a suspect because in the situation, they were pursuing him, and so he was a suspect. And um, when they, when they captured the suspect, the state trooper had administered a a single blow to the head, and he was now, in 2021, being charged with having deprived that suspect of his constitutional rights. Okay. So these are the particulars of the case. Let me stop you just a moment and let our listeners know if you're waiting to hear names and specific details. Karen and I agreed before the interview that just out of deference for the process and for the rights of everyone involved, including the jurors, we're not going to give you specific names. If you're interested, you can do enough research. Perhaps you've already gleaned what this case was, but just in case you're hoping for some juicy gossip, this isn't going to be it. This is all about Karen's point of view as she goes through the process. So I just wanted to make that clear for our listeners at this time. So Karen, you've got the particulars of the case at, at this time. What what happens then? So now the prosecution begins and they called – we were uh, really fortunate. The judge allowed us to take notes. We all had notebooks which we left in the jury room each day when we left. But um, So I took – copious notes and we had about seven witnesses and one and a half days of the prosecution and uh, folks that they would call. They happened to call the gentleman that I refer to as the suspect and then they also called a couple family members, the Nebraska State Trooper who investigated all of this immediately afterwards. But then 
trainers and experts in the use of force tactics that the Nebraska State Troopers use. We listened to, like I said, a day and a half of testimony in all of that. There were numerous exhibits, um, photos, pages from training manuals. We um, All the jurors thought it was sort of interesting that there was an unloaded gun there similar to the one that the trooper had used in this action that was now being deliberated. And the the gun sat there with a gentleman from the prosecution who had his hand on it through the entire trial. My goodness. (laughs) What an image that evokes. Yes, it was. And so then after the prosecution spent a day and a half with that, then the defense had their opportunity. And they called about six witnesses, including the defendant, the former Nebraska State Trooper, and spent two days on that. Part of the evidence that was available was the camera from the um, trooper's cars. The initial trooper, who was not the defendant in this case, had followed this suspect for an hour um, at high speeds in the dark through rural roads. And when you watch an hour of taillights, you um, start convincing yourself, really keep paying attention. I can imagine, yeah. (laughs) Oh, dear. So we saw all of that evidence, and then there there was um, some prosecution rebuttal witnesses and stuff. But then it went to the jury. And at this point, the judge reviewed the instructions that he had given us initially and gave us a lot more instructions. I have a couple of things here that I wanted to read just straight out from the paperwork do. they gave us. Yeah. The first thing was um, the charge. The indictment in this case charged the former Nebraska State Trooper with one crime. The charge was that the defendant committed the crime of willfully depriving the suspect of his civil rights while acting under color of law, which means he was on duty. Gotcha. The presumption of innocence alone is sufficient to find the defendant not guilty and can be overcome only if the government proved during the trial beyond a reasonable doubt each element of the crime charged. There is no burden upon a defendant to prove that he is innocent. Instead, the burden of proof remains on the government throughout the trial. Now, here it mentions um, each element of the crime charge. So then they went on from that charge, and they said there were four elements – All four of these we had to find him guilty on to believe that he had done in order to find him guilty of the crime. One was that he deprived the suspect of the right secured by the Constitution or laws of the United States to be free from unreasonable force by a law enforcement officer and that this uh, trooper had struck him with the buttstock of his patrol-issued rifle. The second point was that the defendant, the former trooper, acted willfully. That is, the defendant committed such act or acts with a bad purpose or improper motive to disobey or disregard the law, specifically intending to deprive the person of that right. Third, that the trooper acted under color of law. Fourth, that bodily injury resulted or that the defendant's conduct included the use of a dangerous weapon. 
So again, we had to agree on all four parts of that in order to be able to say he was not guilty. And at this point, after you got the instructions, did the jury deliberations begin? Um, yes, they did. The um, We'd already heard the closing arguments before the instructions. So now we're on day five of our time there, and the two extra alternates leave having been told, you know, you could be called back if somebody got sick, but now it's just the 12 of us to do this deliberation. And we started off with a vote. You know, someone just, we, we elected a foreman and and they suggested that we simply start with a vote to see where we were. And at that point, we were split. And it was perhaps about eight to four people. And we individually then explained our reasoning and um, discussed some of the points that we were using. And, and I've got to say at this point as I'm looking at this split, I can already tell in some of the personalities and the way they're explaining it that we may not be able to reach a decision. This is just my take on it at this point. Let me get another sense from you mm -hmm. um, before you continue talking about the actual deliberations. Tell me about some of your uh, fellow jurors as much as you feel comfortable sharing sure, about that. Sure, sure. Um, there was quite a diversity. Because this is a federal case, they're brought in from all over the state. We um, we laughed because I think four of them actually were from one small community, and we thought, well, they were well represented. But there was a variety of age, certainly a variety of background. There seemed to be some links that you wouldn't have expected. One woman um, happened to live down the road from somebody else's parents, even though the the child of that parents was a couple hundred miles away. How does that happen? Um, there was one girl who had come from a few hours away. You didn't know if you were going to have to have a hotel room. She was pregnant and she drove all oh these goodness. hours to come to find, oh, I'm chosen. Now I have no clothes, no hotel room. And she had to drive all the way home that night to get her, you know, go bag and come back and get a hotel room. So I don't think people necessarily realize the um, the hardship in the sense of, I don't know what I'm going to be doing tonight. This may be a fanciful question, but uh -huh. I'm just curious. Were you sequestered? No, we were not. Um, but he did give us strict instructions, of course, not to share with anyone in any format what case we were on, what we were doing. He recommended we not listen to the news. And a couple days in, he flat out said, do not get on news at any point. I know there have been press releases. You know, no. Right. Okay. So you were going home sleeping in your own bed. Yes. But you couldn't even talk to your husband about it. No. Or your your animals. No. 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 Nobody that would Nobody that would share. Yes. So there's 12 of you. Yes. And you're, you're starting deliberations and you've already figured out there's a split. Yes. What, what do things look like from that point then? So um, we come in the next day, and this is when we really start. We're watching those video clips, that hour-long video that I mentioned. We're watching clips of it, and we would pick the essential parts and literally watch it over and over and over again, maybe 15 seconds of it. We'd review the testimony. We'd pull out the notes that we'd been taking. We had um, been given copies of the uh, use of force policy and tactical manuals that had been given as evidence, and we would read those and read those and discuss how we'd see them. And it was interesting because some people were starting to change their mind and see things differently. And uh, some people I watched change their mind back and forth over the course of our deliberations. By the time we hit the end of that day, we've now deliberated for basically a day and a half, 
we reached out to the judge and said, you know, we're stuck. And the judge brought us all in, and he was so gracious and so grateful. Come back tomorrow and get started all over again. That's what he said. (laughs) (laughs) And he said we should set aside the decisions we had made and come back in the next day fresh, ready to look at everything as if we had not seen it and um, just start in our deliberation again because we needed to have a decision. So that's just what we did. So you came back the next day and started all over again. But it's hard to imagine unringing certain bells in your mind and in your emotional experience that have already been rung. How do you go about that? What was your process like for that? For me personally, I had done a pretty good job through the course of the trial since he said, don't make up your mind. I had done a pretty good job when I would start to think, well, that means, nope, nope, just listen. So that night I went home and and honestly I prayed, how am I supposed to do this, you know? So I made myself go back to the beginning and think about the facts and think about why I believed what I believed. And I was surprisingly able to do that and found that I was even more sure of the stand that I had at that point. And then we went back in the next day and it really appeared that the majority of the jurors had done the same thing, that they had really tried to wipe out and go back. No, what did they say here? What did that look like? Why did I believe that? What is my reason for for being that way? Did you get a sense that anybody on the jury wasn't taking things as seriously as they should have or perhaps didn't want to be there, had resentments of any kind? Or did you get a sense that everyone was committed, that they were fully involved, that things were going as they should? That was one of the biggest takeaways for me, Ryan. You know, we all know the jokes about people and how you get out of jury duty and everything. I would say out of the 14 people – Uh, there were maybe one or two who were not as fully engaged and one who really wanted to get done and go home. And those two did happen to be part of the 12, but at the same time, they were willing to sit there and they were willing to, you know, they may not have been happy about it, but there was nothing that led you to believe that they were not doing what they were supposed to do. And I was amazed at the willingness of these people to go back. No, we're going to take the time. We're going to read these manuals. We're going to read that use of force policy. We're going to, no, let's we would stand up and work out the actions we saw in the video to see if we really believed that things came down the way they did. It was amazing. Of course, evoking another pop culture reference here, when I think of jury deliberations, I think of 12 Angry Men, the classic movie with Henry Fonda. And was there any of that? Were there any intimidations, any power dynamics that you saw play out that were perhaps off-putting? Or did you get a sense of the group as a whole that there was a mutual respect there? Yes and yes. Um, There was one particular juror who pretty much from the beginning had uh, made up their mind and while they were willing to explain why they had that view, at one point they were one of two. Several of the other jurors kept coming back saying, what you're saying doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand it. Tell me again. And I will tell you, that they asked that juror to repeat 
and repeat and repeat their thought process to the point where I was jumping in out of frustration, you know, in my mind thinking, why don't you understand this is clear to me? And the really interesting part was this juror's opinion was the exact opposite of mine and yet the foundation they laid for their decision was totally rational and logical. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yes. And so at one point on the last day of deliberations, I, I, I was frustrated and I finally spoke up and said, I'm done. I'm done. You know, they were they were mm, badgering is is too harsh, but it felt to me like that for this individual. And they, one of the other jurors, flat out said, "Well, we're not." And so at that point, I decided I need to sit on my hands and just let them do this process. But the mm-hmm. whole time, Ryan, they never expressed. Uh, there was frustration that they didn't understand. But they never put that juror down. They never expressed anything but respect for that juror. There was just remarkable understanding. Interesting. So you're you're talking about the last day of deliberations. At what point did you know that things were going to be deadlocked? We kept going until 3 o'clock. We started at 9 o'clock that morning and we kept going until 3 o'clock. And that's when we finally said, you know, uh, several people have changed positions but um, this individual has said they are not going to, and this other individual said they're not going to, so we're stuck. And we reached out to the judge and said, this is, this is where we're at. So how did it – what's the final resolution then? Tell, tell me about the end here. Uh, the judge called us back into the courtroom, asked us not for a called vote, but simply what was the split, and, um, and then thanked us and said – we had worked very hard. He appreciated us coming back and, and trying again on that last day, but that um, that would be the way it was. The defendant was now in a position where they could um, decide to try the case again since there had been no judgment, but that that would be up to the um, to the government to decide if they wanted to bring the charges. It was very kind, though, afterwards the judge came back into the jury chambers and flat out said to us that it was a very difficult case. He was not surprised that we were not able to make a decision and that he actually thought it was the most difficult case he had seen or would see in a number of years. You know, you've talked uh, about your impressions of your fellow jurors and you've talked about the judge. What were your impressions of the, the, the prosecutor and the defense attorney? That was not like it was on TV either. (laughs) Oh, dear. Um, You know, I'm a really organized person. I've done a little bit of public speaking. And so I don't mean this to sound harsh, but just me, my personal take on it was there was a lot of standing and thinking that I would have expected them to be talking in. I think they were sharp, sharp people. Um, maybe it's the style that I'm not used to. Maybe it's not like Perry Mason anymore, but there seemed to be so much um and mm and wiggle and yeah. yeah. Karen, we're almost out of time and this is fascinating. So the jury deadlocked. Um, I could spend another 30 minutes talking with you, but the, the jury deadlocked. Have you had a sense uh, since then? Are things going forward? Are they going to attempt to try this particular person again 
or where do things stand that you know about? You know, my guess would be not. We were told, the judge told us before we ever left, that the attorneys would be waiting outside the courtroom to speak with us, and the reason they wanted to was to see if we would be willing to talk to them, um, sort of a critique of their style, if you will. Uh And, um, And they did. But they never actually reached out to me personally um, beyond the sense that they said, hey, can we talk to you this one day? I was busy that one day. They said there will be another time and they never did. So I I really think the deadlock was um, was so tight and the number of people believing that the defendant was not guilty – I can't see them doing it again. Right. Yeah. So your last my, – my last question for you, what is your ultimate takeaway from your experience? My ultimate takeaway, there were two things. One was that I was so impressed that all of those jurors came in willing to put in the time and the effort and the other was, as you have mentioned, this is not the impression we get it would be so easy to look at this particular case and go, well, this is it. Obviously, can you not see it? Yep. And then you get those instructions and those points of law. And I realize when I see a case on TV now, I have no clue what those jurors are actually supposed to be deciding on. And I am just so impressed that people are willing to be on a jury and to to do this fairly. Well, Karen, I'm impressed that you served. Um, I The reason we did this on Community Conversations is because normally we talk to a lot of uh, nonprofit uh, people and public officials. They are part of the community. But jury duty is definitely a component of the community. And I'm very impressed that not only did you serve and serve honorably, but that you came and shared your experiences with us here today. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Ryan. Thank you, Karen. And thank you for all you do for Radio Talking Book when you read guideposts for us every Sunday at 1 p.m. We really appreciate all of your time and effort. It's been a pleasure talking with you today. Yes, thank you. Karen Cote, jury uh, servant, if you will. On Community Conversations, this is Ryan O. Thanks so much for listening, folks, and please keep tuned to Radio Talking Book. Have a great day. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Community Conversations on Radio Talking Book. It's the interview program that brings you voices from the Omaha community. The Radio Talking Book Network is brought to you with the cooperation of KIOS-FM in Omaha and statewide through the facilities of NET Radio and Television. We've been proudly serving our blind and visually impaired listeners for 46 years. Thank you for being a loyal Radio Talking Book listener and supporter.